Welcome to Beyond, an hour-long program of tales of science fiction and fantasy brought to you by your host, Beverly Prentice. I will be reading from Fantasy and Science Fiction Magazine, Analog, Tour, Asimov, and other fiction magazines, and sources from the Internet, and hopefully from you. If you'd like to leave a comment about this program, which airs late, please drop a line to beyond3x5 at gmail.com. And I'm going to get right into it today because I have three sort of lengthy stories for you. And the first one, Altered Color Perception. The room looked something between a classroom and a lobby for a doctor's office. Ross Sandberg and his wife Alexa sat in cushioned chairs and snuck glances at the ten other people sitting with them. You said this wasn't going to take long, Ross whispered to Alexa. She whispered back, it wasn't supposed to. Alexa was finishing her psychology degree at the University of Pittsburgh, and was required to participate in three on-campus lab studies. She dragged Ross along with her because they were each promised $100, and she wanted him to appreciate her college experience. Their time in the room began with filling out a bunch of permission and liability forms and installing an app on their phones. Ross was already eager to be done so they could get home and eat dinner. A woman with bobbed hair, glasses, and wearing a white lab coat entered the room and dramatically announced, I'm Professor Gooch. Thank you for being part of our study. All participants lowered their phones and stared at Professor Gooch. It's not very often that you are part of something groundbreaking. Today's your day. Our research group is pioneering a whole new understanding of color perception. We've found that the rods and cones in your eyes may respond the same way to different wavelengths, but your perception of color might be very different than the person next to you. It depends on how your brain developed and the specific chemistry it uses. Professor Gooch continued to talk enthusiastically about the brain, rods, and cones. At first, Ross was intrigued. The more scientific details she added, the less he listened. He was sure that she was exaggerating the significance of whatever it was she was doing. All scientists made a big deal out of minor things. Ross was not surprised at all to hear that some people perceived colors a little differently. But who cared if his version of a shade of red was not quite the same as everyone else's? Professor Gooch finally wrapped up her presentation and exited into the hallway. Graduate student assistants appeared and escorted volunteers into small laboratory rooms. Ross was one of the last to leave. When he finally walked into a dark testing area, it reminded him of visiting an optometrist. A graduate student pointed to a box resting on a table and said, This machine will test your color perception. I need you to place your chin on the chin rest and look straight ahead through the holes. 
Ross positioned himself in front of the box and a pinwheel of lights began flashing. They changed colors and brightness. They moved toward his eyes and away again. Try to blink as little as possible, the graduate student said. Ross replied with, I'm trying, but it's really bright. After almost ten minutes, the lights turned off, and Ross backed away from the box. The student looked at the electronic tablet in her hands and said, I need you to wait right here. These are the kinds of results Professor Gooch will want to see. The graduate student disappeared, and Ross fidgeted alone in the mostly dark room. After a few nervous minutes, Professor Gooch arrived, holding her own electronic tablet. With results like yours, I like to speak with subjects personally, Professor Gooch said in a deadly serious voice. We're finding that around 11% of people have color perception like you. Ross smirked and said, how different could I really be? We've determined that people like you, we call you betas, a majority, rather, no, a minority of the population, perceive red and blue in the opposite way as the majority of the population. We call them alphas. So when a beta sees blue, an alpha perceives the same object as red and vice versa. Ross suddenly realized she was not talking about a slight change in color hue. She was telling him that he almost saw everything differently than most people. He shook his head and said, How is that possible? How come I've never heard of this stuff before? Our studies are very new and just coming out of university and clinical settings, but we already have technical papers on the effect. We call it red-blue flipping. That doesn't sound very scientific. Modern scientists aren't worried about sophisticated Latin or Greek terminology. We use terms people can remember. Ross swallowed hard and rubbed his forehead. So what does this mean for me? Well, there's nothing wrong with you. Nothing in your life needs to change. You're simply finding out you perceive the world differently than most of us. A lot differently, Ross added. Our studies are still developing, but we're finding that betas like you tend to have deep emotions. You're more sensitive to the world around you. You tend to be more artistic, especially when surrounded by other betas. It's a lot to take in. I'm happy to answer any questions if I can. We want to hear about your experiences. Dr. Gooch departed and left Ross to stumble back to the initial waiting room. He found Alexa and immediately asked, Are you an alpha or a beta? Alpha. Well, I'm a beta. Congratulations, I guess, Alexa said nonchalantly. Do you realize what a big deal this is? It means we don't see things the same way. What I think is blue you think is red. Yeah, it is pretty weird, Alexa replied. They left the building and Ross stopped to look up at the early evening sky. I can't imagine seeing that as my version of red, but that's what you're seeing. 
And when you see blood, it looks like my version of blue. I don't know. Doesn't sound right. Maybe they're just messing with our heads. That professor said they already published papers on it. We could Google it and see. Ross used his phone to look up red-blue flipping. And sure enough, there were links to scientific journals and university websites around the world. Professor Gooch's biography appeared at the top of the search page. Seems legit, Ross said as he scrolled through the results. Ross and Alexa walked to their red car, which Ross now knew she was seeing as his blue, and began to drive home. As he scanned the colors around him on the street, Ross said, You know, maybe this is why I don't like some of the color combinations you do. Like the pillows on our bed. I keep saying they don't match. I think matching is always going to come down to personal taste. And maybe that is why I don't like swimming. I don't like the color of the water, but for you, it's fine. I hope you're not going to try to explain everything in your life based on this. I mean, does it really make a difference if you've never known anything else? Easy for you to say. You're an alpha. The world is based around your preferences because you're the majority. Alexa chuckled. I don't think we're that different. Ross looked over at her condescendingly. It was not surprising she did not understand. As a beta, he naturally grasped how important and traumatizing the differences were. An alpha would try to ignore them. Ross flipped on the car's radio, which was tuned to a station playing the latest hits. He pressed the scan button until it landed on a classical station. Why are we listening to this? Alexa asked. I want to try something different. Ross stared out at the passing world and again tried to imagine the shades and hues Alexa saw. He also looked inside the cars on the street, wondering which passengers might be seeing the things the same way he did. When Ross and Alexa reached their apartment, his struggle continued. He shuffled through their rooms, identifying things he did not like, possibly based on their color. He never cared for their couch. He did not like the plastic cups used during meals. He remained mesmerized by the TV screen, calculating what alphas were seeing and trying to understand their preferences. Ross worked as a leasing agent at a firm specializing in large construction equipment. He split his time between customer visits and computer work in his office. When he arrived there the next morning, he examined the pictures on his wall and the personal items on his desk. He grabbed a large trash bin and tossed in anything with a red or blue dominant color. He kept green things. At least with green, he knew everyone was seeing them in the same way. During a staff meeting in the firm's conference room, he was drawn to the blue sky outside the window. He reminded himself he was not the same as his colleagues around the room. They thought differently. When one of them told a story about charging a customer for a piece of equipment leased from a different firm, Ross did not laugh like everyone else. He was a beta and not prone to take advantage of people. 
He skipped his usual lunch plans with the other agents. They were all obviously alphas. Ross returned home and went straight to his closet. He moved every piece of green clothing he owned to one side. Where do you think I could buy more green shirts? Ross asked Alexa. Why green? I don't think that's your color. It's neutral. It fits between the alpha and beta worlds. I'm telling you, you're taking that stuff too seriously. Ross grimaced behind her back. What other kind of response could he expect from an alpha? He was wearing green that weekend when he drove to the paintball range for a long-planned game with his friends. The first 15 minutes were exciting, but then Ross found the action repetitive. Hide behind the hay bales, aim, fire, run to more hay bales. And the conversations between his friends were about such trivial things. They were only interested in sports, vacations, and things you could buy. None of them noticed the trees and animals about the range. None of them were feeling deeply. At one time, the trivial stuff may have been fulfilling, but not anymore. Ross's eyes were now open. When his friends drove to a sports bar for a late lunch, he returned home. During the next handful of days, Ross's life remained in turmoil. His exclusion from the alpha world was all too real and became easier to identify. Every sign and billboard reminded him that his perception was upside down. And it was not only things he saw. The podcasts he previously enjoyed were now filled with ideas and opinions he did not like. When he listened to his wife, he wondered if they were compatible. Maybe they were holding each other back. One week after his diagnosis by Professor Gooch, Ross was starving to do something radical. He took the afternoon off work and drove by himself to the Pittsburgh Carnegie Museums. It was his first visit, and he wandered around until an art museum called to him. He walked slowly past sculptures and paintings, deeply contemplating how they made him feel. Surely the images and figures were beta creations made by artists who saw the same colors he did. For the first time, even the most abstract pieces made sense. On his way out of an Impressionist exhibit, Ross discovered a large open room flooded with sunlight. Inside were rows of easels and blank canvases. A few people stood in front of an easel holding brushes while an instructor called out advice from a raised platform. A sign outside the room advertised it as a walk-in class. Ross paced a circle in front of the door before entering. The instructor instantly spotted Ross. He rushed over and introduced himself as Paul. I've never really tried painting before, Ross said shyly. Perfect. You're exactly who we're looking for. Do you have brushes I can use? Of course. Let's set you up in front of a frame. Paul grabbed a small set of brushes and squirted paint on a wooden board. He led Ross to a bright white canvas about two feet tall. You might think I should ask you to start by copying another painting, but I want you to have total freedom. Paint abstractly. Use any 
of the colors you want. I want your feelings to explode from the paint. Before his color diagnosis, Ross would have scoffed at Paul's directions. Now he simply nodded and confidently grabbed a brush. He knew the gift was in him, and he felt inspired by the beta paintings he had just admired. Ross stabbed at the canvas with his brushes, adding dabs of paint here and line strokes there. He was not mimicking any concrete object. He wanted his colors and shapes to mirror how he felt. He filled one side of his canvas with angry reds and the other side with calm blues. Paul drifted past his easel and paused before offering an appreciative hmm. Ross was in the middle of adding a burst of yellow inspiration to this painting when his phone buzzed with a call. The number was from the University of Pittsburgh. He decided it was important enough to answer. Is this Ross Sandberg? Speaking. I'm one of the students in Dr. Gooch's lab. I'm calling to follow up after your initial meeting last week. Do you have a few minutes to talk? Sure. Ross left his canvas and walked out of the room. We've been tracking your activity with the app on your phone like we said we would. I think we've got some really good data. Now I'm hoping you'll answer a set of questions. If you remember, our study is all about perception. I definitely remember. To start off, I have to come clean about the color test. There is no such thing as red-blue flipping, at least that we know of. We made all that up. What? What about the test? And the papers I googled? All staged. We needed to be convincing. Our study is about how information like that can change perceptions. There's actually no such thing as alphas and betas. Are you sure? What about the artistic stuff? Being able to feel deeply. That was all part of the false information for the experiment. Roz glanced back into the room at his painting. His face flushed. He could not decide if he wanted to punch someone or melt through the floor. The voice on the phone continued with, So, let me start by asking you how strongly the new information affected you. Ross gritted his teeth to catch his anger. Not at all, he said in a lifeless voice. Then he hung up. His phone kept ringing as Ross walked directly out of the museum and found his car. All the way home, he kept his eyes on the gray road and yellow lines. When the walk-in session was over at the museum, Paul asked if anyone knew the person who had left the unclaimed painting on Ross's easel. What a shame, Paul concluded. Obvious raw talent. I hoped he would come to one of my advanced classes. And that's what perception gets you. The second story, Slow Contact Hitter. I'm turning it all the way up to 90, Lyle announced to his friend Colin as he adjusted the speed setting on the batting cage's pitching machine. You're going to whiff on everything, Colin replied with a laugh from behind the cage's protective fence. 
Lyle stepped into position, and just as his friend predicted, swung late. He made contact only with air as the first three baseballs flew past him. He had grown used to slower and fatter softballs playing on a league team organized by his boss. His high school baseball days were a distant team and memory. Now, the only time he tracked a ball moving close to 90 miles per hour was when he and Colin paid for a night at the batting cages. I need to anticipate. Start swinging while it's still in the machine, Lyle said, mostly to himself. He choked up on the bat in his hands. He threw his arms forward as he caught the first glimpse of a ball. Crack! The pitch glanced sideways from the bat and ricocheted off a steel support pole. Lyle felt a blow to his helmet right above the left ear hole. He dropped to one knee and squeezed his eyelids shut. A halo of light flashed inside his head. You okay? Lyle? Colin's words sounded slow, like a recording being played at half speed. Lyle opened his eyes in time to see the next pitch leave the machine. The ball crawled through the humid air. Lyle's head felt heavy as he turned to look at the control dial. It was still set to 90 miles per hour. The next two balls also moved impossibly slow. Colin continued to ask in a drawn-out voice if Lyle was all right. Lyle ignored him and his own well-being and strained to get to his feet. His bat felt like a sledgehammer as he raised it to his shoulder and crouched into a batting stanch. Lyle watched the seams of the next ball spin as it left the batting machine. He had time to track its exact path, and he pulled hard on his bat to intercept. It felt like swinging through water, but the ball and bat made clean contact. The ball shot forward. Hey, you hit one. Where did that come from? Called Colin with stretched out words. Lyle hefted the bat to his shoulder and hit the next ball. Then the next, and the next. When they appeared to move so slow, he could not miss. It was only a matter of intersecting the flight path with the heavy bat. How are you doing this? What happened? shouted Colin. Lyle turned around to reply, his own words coming out like he was imitating a foghorn. Something happened to my head. When that ball hit me, everything slowed down, or maybe my brain sped up. You could play in the majors, break all the hitting records. (laughs) I'm too old for that. Not if you can make contact every time. I could talk to Hunter Henry, you know, the guy who's dating my sister and manages the single-A team. He could get you started and then move you up to the big leagues. Lyle smiled at the idea. It would be cool to play for real. I wonder if I should talk to a doctor first. Over the next few days, Lyle adapted to the world around him, moving at half-speed. He saw a doctor who concluded there was nothing obviously wrong with his brain, and the sensation he was feeling would probably fade. At the same time, Colin cornered Hunter Henry at a family dinner and pestered him about a miracle hitter who was going to bat over 500 in the majors. 
Lyle and Colin showed up at Granger Field, home of the minor league Class A Columbia Fireflies, in the middle of the day. They wore shorts and extra-large T-shirts to cover their pear-shaped torsos. As they strolled toward the net set up behind home plate, Colin spotted Hunter. Here he is, my friend Lyle, Colin called excitedly. Prepare to be amazed. Hunter was younger than Colin and Lyle and full of nervous energy. He looked lean in his fireflies uniform with a dark tan on his arms and face. He took one look at Lyle and spit on the ground. Since I promised to take a look, let's get this over with. Colin continued to talk up Lyle. Something weird happened to his brain. Pitches look slow. He can hit anything. Get on base every time. You'll see. You'll want him on your roster. I'm not looking to sign anyone this late in the season. For everyone dreaming about playing pro ball, we have walk-on tryouts in the spring. Colin acted like he did not hear Hunter's discouraging words. He turned to Lyle and said, Okay, show him what you got. Lyle felt embarrassed as Hunter handed him a bat, and he walked to home plate. One of the Firefly coaches stood on the pitcher's mound with a pitching machine. He fed in a ball, and it spun toward Lyle. He could tell it was traveling around 70 miles per hour, even slower than at the batting cages. He tugged his bat into position and easily made contact. The ball flew gently past the infield. Lyle repeated the action until Hunter called, Turn up the speed. Lyle handed the speedier balls, popping them into the outfield grass. See, he can hit anything, Colin shouted. Throw him a few, Hunter called to the coach on the mound. Hitting against the machine is one thing. A real arm is different. The coach pushed aside the pitching machine and tossed curve-up and curve-ball pitches at Lyle. He knocked them all into the field, even those well outside the strike zone. Run out the next one, Hunter called to Lyle. Let's see how long it takes you to reach first base. Lyle sent the next pitch looping beyond second base. He dropped the heavy bat and trudged down the first baseline. It felt like running in a swimming pool. He reached the base and doubled over from heavy breathing. Hunter turned to Colin and said, He's not much of an athlete and doesn't hit with much power, barely clears the infield. But he can hit anything, every time. Hunter stopped shaking his head. A grin slowly raised his lips. He obviously had an idea. He walked toward Lyle and called out, You think you can purposefully hit fouls? I think so. Let's see. Lyle returned to the batter's box. As the next pitches drifted toward him, he made sure they bounced off his bat at bad angles. Some careened directly behind him. Others sailed sharply left or right outside of the field of play. Hunter continued grinning. You sure you can keep that up? If you want me to. I'm thinking of an experiment. You willing to try something? Get a chance at being a pro ball player? Even with the world still moving slowly around him, the next two days were a dreamy blur. For Lyle, he signed a contract for the minimum league salary, and the equipment manager for the Fireflies found him a uniform. 
He was quietly introduced to his new teammates as an experiment. He was twice their age, and they kept their distance. On the night of his first game, Lyle floated into the team's dugout and stared out at the illuminated field. The smell of cut grass hung in the thick air and mingled with the smell of popcorn. Mumbled crowd noise was punctuated by the pop of practice pitches hitting a catcher's mitt. Lyle could not imagine a better place in the world. He spotted Colin sitting close to third base. Hunter sauntered over and reminded Lyle of the strategy. You're the leadoff hitter. Your job is to wear out their starting pitcher. He's a hard thrower, and they'll pull him once his pitch count gets too high. Foul off everything. What if I know I can get on base? Keep fouling, fouling, no hits. Lyle sat on the bench as his teammates recorded three quick outs in the top of the first inning. Then he grabbed a bat and walked out to hit. The scoreboard flashed his stats. No at-bats for the season. Several thousand fans wondered why he was in the game, but they cheered anyway. To Lyle's ears, they sounded like the deep roar of ocean waves. On the pitcher's mound for the Charleston River Dogs was a six-foot, four-inch kid right out of high school. He smirked when he sized up Lyle. It was the same smirk Lyle had seen from his fellow fireflies. The kid wound up and threw his whole body into a pitch which tracked down the middle of home plate. Lyle leaned forward and pulled his bat down. The ball spiraled backward into the protective screen. Foul, strike one. The next pitch produced the same result. Foul, strike two. Then eight more pitches and eight more fouls. The count stayed at no balls and two strikes. The young pitcher grew frustrated. He tried curveballs and change-ups way out of the strike zone. Lyle acted like it was no big deal to reach out his bat and send the balls flying into foul territory. He glanced at Hunter, who smiled and clapped his hands together. When the pitch count reached 40, the kid on the mound was unmistakably flustered. He wiped the sweat from his face and shook his head at the catcher. The crowd began to boo each new foul which held up the game. Lyle figured it was time to move things along. He sent the next pitch looping lazily over the third baseman and then scrambled with every ounce of available energy to first base. He barely beat a throw from the left fielder. Lyle turned in a circle and waved triumphantly at the cheering crowd. Hunter called timeout and stormed onto the field. I got a hit, Lyle proudly shouted at his manager. Hunter scowled. You weren't supposed to get a hit. Anyone can get a hit. You were supposed to hurt his arm and turn it into a noodle. I thought I did enough. The crowd wasn't happy, so I got on base. I don't care. You're here to do one job. Getting on base doesn't matter. Go back to the bench. I'm putting in a pitch runner because I don't think you could make it around the bases. Lyle watched the rest of the game from the dugout. He cheered for his team, but had no hope of seeing more action on the field. At the start of the next night's game, Lyle kept to Hunter's instructions. 
No matter how much the crowd booed, he struck out his bat and fouled off pitches. The count got to 53 before four pitches were too outside for Lyle to reach. He dropped his bat and strolled to first base on a walk. He shrugged his shoulders toward Hunter to show there was nothing he could do but take the gift. Hunter immediately pulled him for a pinch runner, and he sat the rest of the night. By the fourth game with the River Dogs, their manager figured out Hunter's strategy. Instead of Lyle Ware out there starting picture, he was immediately walked with four lazy pitches way out of the strike zone. The Fireflies' next games were against the Myrtle Beach Pelicans. The River Dogs warned the Pelicans about Lyle, the fouling machine. He stepped up to the plate for his first at-bat and was promptly walked. Lyle showed up for the next game worried about his baseball future. He was not surprised when Hunter took him aside and said, I'm afraid the experiment is over. I can't keep paying you. I did everything you wanted. I got on base every time. It was fun while it lasted, but I can only have a certain number of players, and you're too one-dimensional. The whole point of the minor leagues is to develop players for the majors. They're looking for well-rounded kids, not middle-aged gimmicks. But I can get on base. I can give you a hit any time you need one. I'm not so sure. You got no power. You're too slow to run or be out in the field. And I answer to management. They'll ask why I'm wasting a roster spot. Lyle hung his head, but could not argue his case. He simply asked, Could I have one more at bat? Let me swing away? We'll see. Lyle stayed close to Hunter in the dugout so he would not be forgotten. In the bottom of the sixth inning, the Fireflies had two outs and the bases loaded. Hunter did not have faith in his next batter. He turned to Lyle and said, I must be crazy. Get out there and see what you can do. Swing away? Get on base. Myrtle Beach was in a tight situation. They recognized Lyle as the foul machine, but if Lyle walked, he would force in a run. The pitcher decided to throw strikes and attempted to get an out. Lyle watched the first ball leave the pitcher's hand and knew it was heading right over the plate. He had plenty of time to bring his bat around and aim carefully toward the third baseline. The ball hopped off his bat and landed fair just in front of the grass outfield. Then it slowly rolled toward the low wall beyond the dugout. The stadium exploded with noise and chaos. The three men on base lurched forward. A Myrtle Beach outfielder sprinted for the ball from a dead stop. Lyle dropped his bat and chugged toward first base as if he were dragging cinder blocks. The first base coach gave him the sign to keep running, so he gasped and wheezed his way to second. The Myrtle Beach players were most concerned about the runners in front of Lyle. A wild throw to home plate got lost in the backstop fence. The third base coach waved for Lyle to keep moving. He rumbled around second like he was halfway through a marathon. When he finally got close to third, the coach yelled for him to slide. He awkwardly launched himself headfirst and desperately reached for the bag. The throw to third was low and off the mark. The ball hit Lyle in the helmet right above the left ear hole and dribbled to the ground. 
The umpire yelled, Safe! Lyle squeezed his eyes shut, and the flashing halo was back in his brain. He rose unsteadily and realized the crowd sounded different. The tone was higher. Lyle glanced around, and the other players moved at normal speed. The switch in his brain had flipped back. The crowd screamed and clapped as Lyle got to his feet. He knew he was living the last minute of the dream. He spotted Colin holding up a phone to record the scene. In another year, they wouldn't be the only ones who cared about what happened. No matter how much they talked about it during future softball games, but somewhere, Lyle's record as a pro would be recorded. Since the walks did not count, his average official stats would be two at-bats and two hits, a perfect 1,000 batting average. He could hit anything. Story number three is is called Psychocryptography. The spring skies threatened rain as Leonard Harmon pulled out of the gas station. On his way toward the nearby freeway on-ramp, he passed a car parked off the pavement with its hood up. A young woman who was inspecting the engine turned her head to stare at Leonard as he rolled past her. She was on the verge of tears. Leonard was not handy around an engine or in the habit of stopping to help strangers, but the girl reminded him of his college-age daughter. He pulled over and activated his emergency blinkers. You need some help? Leonard called as he cautiously walked up to the girl in the broken car. The girl had a cute face with unblemished skin. She smiled sweetly as she said, This car has been dying for a while, I think it's toast now. You have anybody you can call about it? I'm not so worried about the car, but I can't miss my meeting in Austin. You're going all the way to Austin, huh? Just outside the city. Leonard looked around as if to check whether anyone was watching. Well, I'm going to Austin myself. If it's an emergency, I guess I could give you a ride if you'd feel comfortable with that. I'm not used to accepting rides with strangers, the girl said with another grin. I'm not used to offering. I won't feel bad if you feel weird about it. The girl shrugged her shoulders. I'm sure it's okay. Or what I should say is, thanks for the offer. Let me grab my bag. The girl picked up her luggage bag, which was leaning against the car. I'm Elise, by the way. Leonard. My daughter has a friend named Elise. Very cool. Leonard opened the rear door of his BMW X3 and Elise lifted her bag inside. Then she eagerly hopped into the passenger seat and began a fast-paced description of the section of San Antonio surrounding them. She hardly took a breath until Leonard merged with I-35 traffic and they were five miles down the highway. So, what's your favorite part of San Antonio? Elise abruptly asked. I won't say the River District, because that's too touristy. Elise prompted Leonard with questions about his favorite destinations, which included his recent trip to Europe. 
Leonard was flattered when she was interested in hearing about his choice in cars. He grinned like a tween at a school dance when she told him he did not look old enough to have a daughter her age. You know, when I said I was going to the outside of Austin, I didn't tell you it was for the far side of Austin. Round Rock, really, actually. You think you could take me all that way? I'm already going that direction, Leonard said with a wave of his hand. It's not that much farther. You're the best, Elise replied, stretching out in her seat. So, what kind of meeting are you going to? Is it for work or something? Yeah, you could say that. I'm a psychocryptographer. I don't think I've ever heard of that. What is it? Elise smiled like she knew a secret. Accessing information these days is about earning a person's trust. People hide behind passwords and profiles, but after a little analysis, they're pretty defenseless. Okay, what does that mean? What do you actually do? I figure out passwords. You're like a hacker? Elise scoffed. I'm a lot closer to a psychologist than a hacker. Leonard shook his head skeptically. It must take a long time to get to know one, someone well enough to guess their password. Ten minutes at the most, usually less. Ten minutes? No way. Everyone thinks they're so unique, but they all fall into just a few patterns. I happen to be very good at picking them out. Leonard chuckled. Impossible. I don't believe you. Elise stared at him like she was sizing up a dress at a clothing store. Let's see. You're a combination of your wife's name, Laura, if I remember right, an asterisk, and 2001, when your daughter was born. The car swerved as Leonard glanced to his right with dread in his eyes. How did you do that? I'm not sure of the order, but after a few combinations, I should have it, Elise continued. Leonard's frown as he gripped the steering wheel. Who are you? Is this some kind of scam? Sounds like I'm right then, huh? Elise said with a laugh. I thought you said it was impossible. I don't know what's going on. I told you I was very good at what I do. What do you want from me? Nothing. I'm thankful you're giving me a ride. Elise laughed as she glanced at a now rigid Leonard. I'm not going to hurt you. I shouldn't have picked you up. I know you think you did something wrong. Relax. Nothing bad is happening. You're simply giving me a ride. I'm not going to access any of your accounts. Maybe I should pull over and let you out. You already agreed to take me to Round Rock from all I know about you. You're someone who keeps his commitments. Elise smiled and stared casually out the window as Leonard snuck glances at her. She pulled her dark hair out of a ponytail and let it fall to one side of her face. She did not remind him of his daughter anymore. They drove for miles in silence. The longer he sat next to her, the more Leonard's eyes began to drift from the road toward Elise. She was exotic and dangerous, like a wild animal sitting in his car. 
He really should have kept his mouth shut and his eyes forward. But an uncontrollable curiosity kept clawing at his spinal cord. Are you truly going to Round Rock? Uh Uh-huh. Good business there. You mean lots of passwords? Ellie smirked. I'm going to an auction. Art, cars, expensive antiques, people who buy that stuff have more money than they know what to do with. They won't miss some of it. How does it work? Figure out a bank account and empty it out like an email scam artist? There's no scam. But you could call me an artist. I've been practicing for a long time. I charm people, tell them what they want to hear, and I only take what they won't miss, an amount that looks like a mistake or forgotten extravagance. I don't want the banks looking very closely. I leave the wire transfer stuff to my partner. She's got those kind of skills. But fundamentally, you're a thief. A psycho-cryptographer. I'm giving people something and taking in return. That's what the whole economy is based on. That sounds like an excuse. You're not actually working for your money. Oh, yes, I am. And I have to stay sharp and practice like any professional. Leonard drove another five miles before asking another question. He knew he was better off ignoring her, but he simply could not resist. Have you ever met anybody famous and, you know... Figured them out? Like a celebrity, an actor, or an athlete? If they're successful, those people have no idea about their money. They trust a manager or an accountant. I'd be a lot more interested in figuring out the manager. Who was the biggest target you ever cracked? Elise did not share names, but she was happy to recount stories of deciphering Wall Street bankers and yacht clubs and trust fund playboys and European ski lodges. Did she ever feel in danger? Not really. She was always far away from her targets before using any of their passwords. She kept moving and kept a low profile. What about your family? Don't you have roots anywhere? Leonard asked. Sure. I tell my family I work for the government. Top secret stuff. Explains why I'm I'm gone so much and can't talk about my job. By the time they were halfway to Austin, Leonard forgot his shock and paranoia. He wanted to know how she picked out her victims and the easiest personality types to read. He wanted to know what gave him away when she nailed his password elements. I can't teach you everything in an hour, Elise replied. But I can tell you my favorite probing question. I ask people if they've ever been told they look like someone famous. Why does that work? I'll let you figure it out, Elise sighed, like she was bored with the conversation. She peered over at the speedometer. How fast can this thing go? Leonard looked up at the speedometer himself. He was doing 85 miles per hour to keep up with traffic. I've never had to try to push it too hard, but I've been wondering the same thing. Why don't we find out? Now? Why not? You're a good driver, right? Leonard nodded and felt compelled to prove it. He stepped on the gas pedal and the BMW gained speed. 
Leonard swerved to slip past slower traffic. Elise urged him to go faster. Feels pretty good at 105, she said smoothly. Let's see what's it like at 125. Leonard accelerated and gripped the steering wheel. The left lane was clear, and the stripes on the road flashed past as he hit 125. Elise laughed and said she might stick her hand out the window to test what it felt like. She was still chuckling with satisfaction when Leonard spotted red and blue lights flashing in the rearview mirror. He swore and instantly slowed down. I should have known this was going to happen, Leonard moaned as he eased the BMW over to the right shoulder. This is going to cost me big time. Why did you make me do that? I didn't make you do anything, Elise replied coolly. When Leonard stopped, the police officer and the flashing patrol car cautiously approached. He wore sunglasses. And moved with a self-important strut. Keep your hands where I can see them, the cop ordered Leonard. You were way over the speed limit. You in some kind of emergency? No, officer, Leonard answered miserably. Let's see your license and registration, proof of insurance. Leonard obediently handed over his license and documents. The officer went to work inspecting them and feeding the license into a handheld scanner. He tapped at some buttons as Leonard groaned and asked how much of a ticket would cost him. Few hundred dollars, I'd be more worried about your insurance company jacking up your rates. Leonard scowled at Elise before dropping his head helplessly to his chest. The cop explained getting a future message and how Leonard could dispute the violation in court. Elise finally registered a reaction. She leaned over to address the highway patrolman as he handed back Leonard's license. Excuse me, Officer Wagner, Elise began, reading his name from a tag on his uniform. This might sound crazy, but has anyone ever said you look like Zac Efron? Officer Wagner chuckled. No, but I've heard I look like Miles Teller from Top Gun Maverick. Yeah, I can see that, Elise answered flirtatiously. Did you go to high school around here? Officer Wagner looked down at his class ring. Yeah, class of 2012. I thought so. Elise leaned back in her seat and looked at her fingernails. Leonard and Officer Wagner stared at her like they were expecting more questions. She glanced over at Leonard and said, I'm done. We can go. Officer Wagner took a final confused peek at Elise before barking out, Keep it under the speed limit. You have a nice day. He strutted back to the patrol car. Leonard turned to Elise. That's it? I thought you were going to sweet-talk him, convince him to cancel the ticket. I got something better. Come on, let's go. Elise pointed toward the highway before reaching into her pocket for her phone. What are you doing? Just drive. Elise tapped away until she reached a login for the highway patrol. She used awful Sir Wagner's name and then mumbled to herself as she typed in possible passwords. Graduation year, 
callsign from Top Gun. Special character. Nope. Change that. Uh huh. Uh huh. Okay, got it. You got it? Leonard cried. Deleting, deleting, deleting. Elise replied nonchalantly. She held up her phone to show Leonard any record of his speeding had been erased. You give me a ride, do something nice for me, I do something nice for you. Wow, I can't believe it. Thank you. Don't mention it. Now I have to get you to Round Rock, Leonard said in a relieved voice. Hey, I just remembered your car back in San Antonio. What are you going to do with that? Oh, that wasn't my car. I saw it there and just used it as a prop. Leonard smirked and shook his head. Let me guess. Elise isn't your real name, is it? You're catching on to psychocryptography pretty fast. So why don't you have your own car? Surely you can afford it. Why get a ride from me? I like to travel light, and I like the practice. You were a nice warm-up before the real thing. <laughs>